I'm Christopher Ward, and this is Famous Lost Words, a deep dive into the interview archives. Joining me once again, my co-host and the creator of our show, Tom Joke. Tom? Christopher, the deck is loaded with another impressive collection of interviews this week. First up is a sensational interview with Elton John from the early 70s. In light of Elton's recent announcement of his farewell tour, the one that will last three years, (laughs) we're going to go back more than 40 years to listen to Elton at his chatty, funny, slightly irascible best. And I know we boast about our extensive collection of great interviews that we have in our archives, so people have already asked us, you got any Michael Jackson in that collection? And the answer is a resounding Kinda, kinda. (laughs) So I've dug deep, I've searched, and I have found it. One stinking audio clip, only one single audio (laughs) clip of Michael talking to us. The darn thing is only 45 seconds long, but I got to tell you, it's actually great to hear. 45 seconds of gold, Christopher, gold! Was there a sequined glove beside it in the archives? (laughs) And for a complete change of pace, we have a really interesting interview with the Ramones, a (laughs) band that it seems that everybody knows about, but nobody knows really well. They are considered one of the bands that changed it all and were hugely influenced on so many other groups, but they never really sold many records. Mm -hmm. Today, we are catching them in 1980 as the movie Rock and Roll High School was in theaters, and you have a story about that. We also have the quintessential Canadian 80s band with one of the biggest and best songs from that era right and we're talking about the spoons and we're talking to them later and of course we end it all with the wisdom of dave where Mm. david lee roth speaks and then manages to amuse and confuse us all first up (laughs) elton john so tom i attended the very first elton john oscar party in support of the elton john aids foundation wow it was fantastic it was a splashy affair uh held at a west hollywood restaurant called maple drive and while it's it wasn't as star-studded as it is now over 25 years later it was pretty cool and um uh, i remember i was there hanging out with mike myers and i remember meeting chris rock uh, I met Sean Young. Do you remember her? Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, the actress that, from yes. No Way Out. Oh, my God. She was fantastic in that. Yes. And coming off of her massive success in Basic Instinct, a very frisky Sharon Stone. Okay. I think you need to explain uh, why she was frisky, but maybe after the show. <laughs> No, she was just a really um, super uh, upbeat, Mm -hmm. sparkly personality. Whereas, you know, normally when you see her, there's a kind of a cool restraint. She's Mm -hmm. very elegant, beautiful, obviously. Uh, And it was just, it was a really a lovely other side of her to, to see. So when Mike Myers met Elton and they were being photographed, Elton wrapped his arms around him and said under his breath as the shot was being taken, oh, there goes your reputation. <laughs> anyway, in, we have a great interview with uh, Elton John here, and uh, he's quite voluble. He goes into a wide variety of topics, including how being a musician can lead to a sustained adolescence. It's a lovely industry to be in, and I love it. And you know, not just my side of it, but the actual, you know, seeing other artists selling records, and the whole aspect of the record industry fascinates me, and always has done. But it gets to a point where you have to say, well, gosh, you know, it's beginning to take me over. I don't have any private life. I don't have any other functions. I don't, you know. So, from uh, from a point of view of working and. Uh, doing a lot of things I think probably uh, I'm going to cut down quite a lot it's ironic hearing that that Elton would become well known for retiring because he announced his retirement on several occasions but somehow I feel like the tour he announced and the goodbye he announced a few weeks ago will this will definitely be the last tour 
Well, it's going to be the long goodbye because <laughs> it's it's a three-year enterprise. That's right. That's a, that's a lot of shows. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, looking back, as he did in this interview, he said that people kind of got the wrong idea of who he is as an artist um, based on his breakout single, Your Song. I've always got been labeled as a... Uh, a singer of slow songs who went wrong and started to become a rock and roller, which has never been the case, really, uh, because uh, right from the first Elton John album and from the Empty Sky album, I've always played a lot of rock and roll. It's just that your song, sort of, that was it. Oh, yeah, for sure. And it's funny because I think eventually the world would catch on to what, that he was so much more than just a ballad singer. But, boy, that song stuck with him and stuck to him for a very long time. And, you know, I'm not sure there are too many ballads better than that song. It's a gorgeous song. No, nice problem to have for mm-hmm. that to be part of your legacy. For sure. But, it, you know, it's funny looking back to that time period in the summer of 1970, Elton's first album wasn't happening yet in the United States. And um, he was booked to play six nights at the legendary Troubadour on Santa Monica Boulevard. And that's a, a bar which had helped launch the careers of the Eagles, Joni Mitchell, Tom Waits, and, and so many others. The place was packed with big-name people. Um, the performance with just a trio was phenomenal, and the buzz was amazing. Uh, and Elton here talks about that event. It's important. You see, I never wanted to perform. After I left Bluesology, all I wanted to do was be a writer. And as someone, I got lucky, and I was able to make records. And then, because the Elton John album didn't sell when it first came out, I was literally forced, I really mean forced, by Dick James and people like that to go out on the road so that the record will sell. And then, I mean... The Troubadour thing was such a freak, the way it happened, because I literally didn't, two days before I was refusing to go over, I don't want to go over there. And the only thing that persuaded me to go over to America was the fact that I'd be able to go to Tower Records or somewhere and get some free records. Um, <laughs> so, I do was, too, all the time. No, but I time. mean, American re- records really fascinated me, you see. So that was the thing that was eventually swung it. I really wasn't that interested in going over and playing the Troubadour. I, I just think it all started just for freebie records. It just happened. It started mm-hmm. in that one room, and it's just got... Uh, Totally, I mean, totally ridiculous. Wow, those that troubadour stint with him is absolutely legendary. And you know, in the history of rock and roll, you you can sometimes read stories about the gig that changed it all, the TV performance that changed it all. And for Elton John, it was that gig at the troubadour. Everybody went bananas yeah. for this guy who was essentially beating up his piano, wearing these outrageous outfits, but also had incredible musicianship. And so uh, it was a real turning point for him. You know, I think artists, one of the big moments of sort of maturation in their careers is when they are big enough and have an opportunity to look back at the people that influenced them and changed the direction of their lives, musically speaking anyway. Elton was a huge fan of... Neil Sedaka, mm-hmm. and and he spoke about how he came to sign Sedaka to Rocket Records. Well, Neil was easy because uh, I mean Neil was just a piece of good fortune. Uh, I was a fan of his for a long time, and then he had a lot of success in England before he became successful in North America. Um, and no other, no record company would release his albums in, in in North America. And he just said to me one night at a party, "Would Rocket Records like to release his albums?" And I sort of staggered backwards and uh, <laughs> had to be revived five minutes later. And said, "Of course we will." Yes, and we promised him that we'd work hard on them and diligently. And it's, it really worked out for him. I mean, it's, he's had an incredible year last year. So that was really it. Wasn't really much to do with me because the records were so good. It's, I just couldn't believe anyone had the blindness not to put them out, especially that he was already under contract to a record company that had the tapes and wouldn't put them out. 
I just mm-hmm. couldn't believe it. You know, that is a great clip because Elton had been a long-time advocate for so many artists over the years, and he would make a point of supporting them or talking about them or performing with them. A few years ago, probably about 12, 15 years ago, I was interviewing Amanda Marshall, and she was coming off the high of having heard from Elton John over the song Dark Horse. Did you write that song, Christopher? I did not write that song. Um, that was written by um, Amanda Dean McTaggart. Right. Dave Tyson, I think, maybe the three of them. Okay. I know that you had a lot to do with that album, and uh, and I know that she was absolutely thrilled when Elton reached out to her and talked to her about that song. And so that was the kind of guy he was. And also, he was always very plugged into the music scene. I know you had a place in uh, Atlanta and, uh, and several places around the world, but once a week, he would go and buy two or three of the latest CDs, like two or three copies each of the latest CD because he wanted to find out what was hot and he would listen to all of them. And he was really in tune with the charts, who was hot, and um, and he wanted to be plugged in. You know, whether it was working with Eminem or Kiki D, um, he was just a, just a huge advocate and supporter of, uh, of other people's music and continues to this day. Well, to that point in this next segment, did you, by the way, did you catch the show Spectacle? Is that the Elvis Costello show? Yeah, Costello was the host. Right. It was a, a UK a Canadian co-production. It went from 2008 to 2010. There were two seasons. Right. Um, but they had an array of some of the greatest artists and songwriters around, like The Police, James Taylor, Tony Bennett, uh, Nora Jones, Bono and the Edge, and so on. Elton was one of the executive producers of that show. And also, he was the guest on the first episode. I saw that. It was great. It was fantastic. And for me as a songwriter, it was really eye-opening because... Again, he talked about the people who influenced him the most, mentioning a a few, not necessarily household names, people like Alan Toussaint, the, you know, legendary New Orleans writer, producer, Mm -hmm. uh, Leon Russell, piano player who was in the uh, Mad Dogs and Englishmen tour with uh, Joe Cocker, and songwriter Laura Nero, one of my personal favorites, who wrote Stone Soul Picnic, When I Die, Wedding Bell Blues, among others. What he did is he played bits of their songs... And then sections from his own songs showing the direct lineage between wow. the two. very good. For a songwriting nerd like me, <laughs> I mean, it was one of the most fascinating reveals of an artist's roots I've ever seen. So in this next segment, he talks about some other influences on himself and his co-writer, Bernie Toppin. Bernie, I would have to say, I, pro- I might have been, yes. Uh, Bernie, I should say, yes, because Bernie is and was... Uh, is and was. What am I talking about? Is still a Dylan freak and was a very, very much bigger Dylan freak than he is now, in fact. But he was a, an incredible Dylan freak. I've never really been influenced by Dylan's music. I've liked his albums, but not actually his musical style. I was more influenced by the band, uh, which really? was, yes. Oh yes, about music from Big Pink and the way uh, I think it comes across on Tumbleweed very much. I like those sort of groups, like the band and Little Feet. Um, uh, and I was very much influenced on Tumbleweed by uh, music from Big Pink. Big Pig. Music from Big Pink. <laughs> uh, Don't worry, I do it all the time. Yeah, not, no, I've never been consciously uh, influenced by Dylan's music. Bernie has, I think, by his lyrics, but the band were the ones that I think that influenced me a lot. Wait, what? Elton John was influenced by the band? That's crazy, because I can't hear it at all, but I guess you can. I guess that more organic stuff that he and Bernie did, but that is crazy to me. He didn't really care for Dylan's music all that much, but he was influenced by the band. That's excellent stuff. Well, I could see Bernie Toppin's influence from the band, Mm -hmm. particularly if you listen to uh, Tumbleweed Connection, which is, you know, sort of a... 
an album written with a little, you know, glow from sort of an Americana past. And, I mean, when you consider what Robbie Robertson wrote about in, in this, the band songs, there's a direct lineage for me there. Mm-hmm. But I know what you mean musically. It's a bit more of a stretch. Mm-hmm. Um, when they collaborated, by the way, Elton had no interest in writing lyrics. And he talks about how his collaboration with Bernie Taupin works. I just knew I would never make it as a, a lyricist. I, I used to have melodies flying around, but not lyrics. Um, so I've, I'd never wanted to write lyrics anyway. I've always just wanted to write melodies. We only write twice a year, so it doesn't seem as if we're around all the time trying to churn out melodies and lyrics. It's sort of in two bursts. It's like having sex twice a year, really. Uh, <laughs> we meet for a couple of albums and... Uh, and he writes a set of lyrics and usually writes, oh, and we talk about what sort of lyrics we want. But I think uh, his lyrics have become very depressing. Um, <laughs> I mean, they always have been on the Arabic Road. There's only one happy song on the album, that's Harmony. And on the new album that we've just done, some of the lyrics are enough to send uh, happy people staggering for their aspirins everywhere. But I quite like singing those sort of songs. Um, his lyrics, I think, have got more and more depressing. I don't know why. Uh, perhaps that's the side of his life that's coming out that he's expressing in his lyrics, obviously, but uh, they've become more... Um, I keep... On the fact, they were so depressing on this album that uh, I had to say to him, Burn, how about writing a couple of uh, uh, cheerful ones? <laughs> okay, so I just have to jump in here because when Elton made his announcement a few weeks ago um, about his final tour, he told the story of how he eventually got uh, matched up with Bernie Taupin. So Elton's a musician and people are saying, you know, you need to write lyrics. He goes, I don't write lyrics. I need someone else to write lyrics. And I think he was hanging around Dick James Music. I think he was around um, this group of people that helped foster other songwriters. And someone at that office literally pulled, randomly pulled a manila envelope out of a pile and handed it to Elton and said, I, these are uh, these are some lyrics here. Why don't you see what's in here? And it was random, and it was an envelope. Nobody knew anything. Elton opens it up. It's Bernie Taupin, and that moment changed both of their lives. Wow. Yes. Oh, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> so that's some amazing stuff from Elton John from the 70s. And I've got to tell you, Christopher, we've got lots of full interviews with Elton to share with you in the coming months and years. He was one of the most talkative and one of the most generous artists, um, uh, you know, over that over those decades. And, uh, and it's still great to uh, hear from him every once in a while and to see him out there. And I look forward to, uh, to his new tour. Mm, can't wait to hear that. Christopher, our next segment is about Michael Jackson, uh-huh. but it's by way of Diana Ross, who you work with extensively. Well, I got the job of writing songs with Diana Ross in the late 1990s. I'd go to her place and we'd talk for a couple of hours wow. and I would take notes, which would later become the basis of a new song. And I was working with a partner of mine named Tim Tickner. Well, one time I went to see Diana and she said, I want to write a song about Michael I knew who she meant. <laughs> now, this was not a good time for Michael Jackson. He had charges of sexual impropriety being leveled against him. Right. The public attitude was turning against him in many areas. But she elaborated to say that she wanted to write something to let him know that she was there for him no matter what. I think she pictured, you know, one of those big emotional ballads as this, you know, kind of powerful message of support. I thought, I can't write that. Oh, just, really? So you had a lot of doubt about that? About well, what I did, Yeah, it. I didn't express it at the time, but I, I left the meeting thinking, how am I going to do this? Um, so I took notes, as I always did, and went home to try to cook something up. So Tim and I decided to do something sort of funkier musically and a little bit left of center lyrically. We called it Drop the Mask. 
Oh, which was great. like a reference to Michael wearing a surgical mask in public back in those days, but in effect saying, you know, stop hiding and be yourself. The first lines of the song were, look in the mirror, who do you see? Where's the man you used to be? And it was sort of like a little reference to Man in the Mirror. Yeah. Anyway, she loved it, T- to my surprise. Didn't ask why I hadn't written the big, you know, hoopla ballad. And uh, it was the first song of ours that she recorded. That's great. Oh, well, let's hear some of it. Look in the mirror. Who do you see? Where's the man that he used to be? That is awesome. Very funky, uh, very passionate. That's great. Thank you. Cut to our next meeting. I was in Diana's room at the Beverly Hills Hotel. Our session had been scheduled for her beachside place in Malibu, but there had been torrential rains, and the Pacific Coast Highway in Malibu had been completely washed out. Anyway, we talked, we traded ideas for a couple of hours, and she was walking me to the door when the phone rang in her room, and she said, hang on a sec. She greeted the caller with this very cheerful hello, (laughs) and turned back to me and mouthed the words, it's Michael. Oh and gave God. me this conspiratorial wow. grin. I just got goosebumps. So I, I let myself out of the room. Listen, you were working with Diana Ross. So in a way, like for me, that would have been a massive moment where you're working with one of the greatest singers and one of the most popular singers of all time. And then she's on the phone. Like that's, like that's a Kevin Bacon six degrees of separation moment. You kind of met Michael Jackson in that moment, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, it's just funny that she wanted to write a song yes. about him. yes. And I was presenting the idea to her yeah. that day. Right. And then the, the call That's comes. That's great. Okay. That great, strange. great stuff. In our interview clip here, Michael explains the origins of the Jackson 5 and the importance of Diana Ross in their career. I started singing around the house. It was nothing to do. To sing old folk songs like Cotton Fields Back Home. Then Jackie, Jermaine, and Tito decided to start a group. They started making harmony. Marlon and I came in. We didn't know what to call ourselves then, but we were, my father bought microphones and guitars, and we were rehearsing, and we called ourselves the Jackson Five, and we did a lot of talent shows, and we would always win. And one day, as the mayor's guest was Diana Ross in the audience, nobody knew it. We went up and we did the whole show, and when we finished, she came back and told us how good she liked it, and she took us to Motown. My first hit was I Want You Back, which sold two million copies. That's great. That's all 45 seconds of all the audio we have of Michael Jackson talking, but it is great. Now, it is funny he credits, you know, Diana Ross to such a large degree for his career, but I'd like to remind everyone that in episode one of Famous Lost Words, Janet told us a bit of a different story about who really discovered the Jackson 5, and that was Bobby Taylor from Bobby Taylor in the Vancouver's. Right. And um, in that interview, we were, we were talking about it, and we, we knew a little bit about Bobby, and she, you know, Janet was very happy to hear it, but that's who she credits for discovering the Jackson 5. And that reminds me, you can hear our interview with Janet Jackson from 2004, just weeks after the Super Bowl fiasco. That's on episode one of Famous Lost Words, as I just said, available on the iHeartRadio app and iTunes. Up next, the influential, groundbreaking, and totally messed up seminal <laughs> punk rock band, The, the Ramones. Ramones. So, Tom, I saw The Ramones play at the Elma Combo in February of 1979. Wow. And it was 35 minutes of fury as they sped through the songs, um, beginning with the chant of Hey Ho, Let's Go from Blitzkrieg Bop. And it was the perfect place to see them because, you know, they were right at home on small stages like CBGB's in New York, places Mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. Now, the guys here in the interview, Joey, 
and Johnny. And um, Joey's the one that sort of sounds more nasal and more New Yorkish. Um, they're sounding pretty mellow in this interview, which I think is around 1980. Yes. They start by talking about the movie Rock and Roll High School. How, how is that movie going, anyway? Uh, it played everywhere in the United States. I mean, uh, they didn't really push it, the company New World. But, um, you know, it did well. It has It's like a cult-type movie. Yeah. Where it's become... it's, after it played the cities, it came into theaters on midnight shows, and it's been in New York for a few months on midnight shows. And They're calling it like the new Rocky Horror Show or something like that. Do you get a sizable piece of the action no, on that? No, nothing. Nothing? nothing. <laughs> Whoa! Costs us money to ma- be in it. <laughs> but it I think not, no, not really. I mean, yeah, just yeah. being out there, we got paid for it. But it costs us more being out there than we got paid. It's helped us a lot. <laughs> you know, it's helped uh, broaden our audience and all. You know, I mean, it's good so that like the little little kids, like ten, thirteen year olds, who can't come into the show sometimes or the bars. Right. A lot of times, if you're not doing a whole full scale tour, you have to play. You know bars and places like that that sell alcohol they can't come in because there's a drinking age and this way um the youngest kids can come see the movie you know like um like sometimes we'll do um a promotional thing we go to the theater and it's on autographs and i've seen Mm -hmm. like eight-year-old kids there that's great you know it's like it's like it's it's even better seeing them than uh older people you know because it's like um they're young and they, they know what's good, you know? Okay, that's a good point, because during that time, there wasn't really much access to a band. You know, videos weren't huge yet, and so for them, uh, a movie like this would be a great exposure, especially to younger audiences. Uh, you know, people who couldn't make it out to CBGBs or the El Macambo uh, to, uh, uh, you know, to see them perform. So a movie, that would have been a huge deal for them. Well... As it happens, <laughs> I took my then 14-year-old sister Jennifer to see the movie in Vancouver, and we loved it. Uh, it was sort of classic anti-authority themes with, you know, uh, Mary Warrenoff as the nasty principal, Miss Togar. Her best quote was, lick my boot, you little worm. <laughs> <laughs> well, they made what now might sound like an odd choice for the producer of their 1980 album, End of the Century, but at the time, it made sense. How did you happen to use Phil Spector to produce End of the Century? Uh, he, he came pro- to you? Yeah, he came to us about two years ago, and he wanted to do uh, Rock to Russia, Road to Ruin albums. And each time we'd go out there, we would talk with him and uh, make sure he understood what we were doing. Because we didn't want anyone to try to change us in mm-hmm. any way. And, That's uh, difficult with Phil Spector. Uh, yeah, but he, we, we saw that he understood us mm-hmm. and, that, and that he just wanted to enhance... You know, the brilliant. and to <laughs> bring out the um, whatever he felt was missing. That's all. But he didn't want to change it. He understood what we were doing. And Are you happy with end of the century? Uh, oh that's yeah, great. But he he's, he's understood that he hasn't seen anything like you know what you know what real rock and roll music since you know the Ronettes and stuff like that. You know, because doing uh, Leonard Cohen and shares and is, is, in a way, the a LP joke. that he did for you is kind of. Sp- Put his career back in gear again. Oh yeah, well he was he was going to make a comeback, you know, and he wanted to do it with us, you know, because mm-hmm. he wanted to do it right. He wasn't going to come back and do it foreign or someone like that, you know. The Ramones were a band that were very talked about, uh, extremely influential, but probably never got the sales to match that. Here they talk about building a fan base and a little bit more about Phil Spector. Has success 
This sounds like such a no, cliche. No. It spoiled us. <laughs> <laughs> you don't really feel because you it it comes on so slow. It's not like you put out your first album and all of a sudden you're huge mm -hmm. and then success could spoil I mean, you. We've been banging our heads against the wall for the last five years, you know, trying to. But if you just go out and you continue to tour and you put out albums and each album you just get slightly bigger and you make more fans each time you go back to cities and you keep drawing more people. Mm -hmm. It's different if you're Boston or something, you know, and you. You don't really feel anything. It seems like it's this, you know, you're still in the same spot, really, mm -hmm. uh, you know. It's hard to remember back already. Uh, You've always felt this good, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we love playing. We love getting up there and uh, and seeing, making these people happy. You know? I wanted to find out a bit more about Phil Spector because he's sort of a, a legendary character and right. he has a, a lot of idiosyncrasies that you hear about. Yeah. Um, was it uh, was it a trip to work with Phil Spector? Yeah, he's a wild and crazy guy. Yeah, wild. <laughs> he's, um, he's a perfectionist, you know, and he wants it to be right. So and. You know, you respect the guy. I mean, he's, he's great. You know, he's well, did you do it his way? Or did you both see did, the same we thing? Did. We, we saw the same, same way. I think we were looking for the same thing. You know, there was no confrontations. We were not going to accept somebody giving us an idea that we didn't like and put it on our record because we have to live with it. So he would make a, a suggestion, and the suggestions that he made were sounded real good to us. It wasn't there was like things that we were looking for, too. I mean, you know, he'd say, hey, how do you guys feel about, you know, putting a piano in... Uh, and that's what we would wanted to do before he mm -hmm. said it, you know. <laughs> it wasn't like he was a dictator in the studio, and you know, it was fifty-fifty. Uh, it was um, we were working together, you know, and it was and it came out that way too. It wasn't it wasn't a friction, and it was uh, very relaxed, and we just got got done what we wanted mm -hmm. to do. You know? I interviewed Dee Dee Ramone uh, a few years after this when he was going through his Dee Dee King rapper phase. <laughs> what? Now he talked to me about working with Phil. Yeah, yeah, I know. And although Joey and Johnny said there were no confrontations, Dee Dee told me a story, which is completely credible, about a night when they were sitting with Phil watching TV in the studio lounge, and Phil, displeased with something he saw on the screen, pulled out his gun and shot a hole in the TV. Wow. You know, it's, because it that's is, what people did then, right? Ex yes, exactly. <laughs> and and you know, uh, I've heard the uh, this interview before as well, and they were speaking pretty nicely about uh, Phil. I think they didn't want to tell tales out of out of school, especially while they were still working with the guy. But in a subsequent interview that was just published uh, a couple years ago in Rolling Stone, um, they they talked about just how crazy it was working with him. Here's a Phil Spector story for you. Well, let's, okay. Let's let's call this an apocryphal tale. Okay. There was a point at which somebody had the great idea that um, Phil Spector should produce Celine Dion. <laughs> okay? So, now here's the part that is mostly in question, but apparently the deal that Phil made was that he was able to bring in two consultants on the sessions. <laughs> and those consultants were Ike Turner oh. and Cato Kalin <laughs> of O.J. Simpson fame. <laughs> and it gets better. Um, apparently, one of the things that Phil demanded was that they put the London Symphony Orchestra on one of the tracks. Mm -hmm. So they flew to London. They had the symphony orchestra there. They played. They recorded them. And afterwards, Phil turns to the engineer and says wipe the tracks. Oh. And the engineer says, well, why? They, they, they sound great. Everything was fine, wasn't it? He says, yeah, I just wanted them for the vibe. <laughs> so they wiped the tracks. Wow. 
I think I think Phil, that was Phil's exit from the job. But. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. No, I remember. I remember. Um. Um. You know, the big news that he had produced. Uh, Celine Dion, and it seemed kind of weird at the time, but it also it became weirder in retrospect when he, we started hearing all those awful stories about his behavior. Back to the Ramones. Okay. <laughs> um, the the, uh, the in the interview, uh, they're asked about uh, their place in what was then the current new wave movement. New wave is beginning to happen in Toronto. I don't know if it's um, and New York. I, I assume yeah, as well. It's, it's happening in America. Yeah, now. It's happening in America. I mean, it's, it's happening worldwide. You know, it's like I swept totally, like turn turn the airwaves around. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Which is the, the way it should be. It's not like you can't expect expect the radio to come to you. You got to change it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's probably about eight or nine new wave groups that are in the top hundred in the, in the American charts right now. I mean, the Clash and us. And the Pretenders, B-52s, Talking Heads, Romantics, mm-hmm. a lot of groups, Gary Newman. Uh, you know, I guess a lot of people see that it's uh, the, the music of the uh, 1980s started and mm-hmm. it's a new music of 1980s. It's like healthy. Yeah. It's, uh, rock has to keep making changes and otherwise it'll grow stagnant people will get sick of it and you can't let it die. Is what you're into a change or is it just uh, going back from square one and starting well, over the- again? Uh, well, it's both. I mean, you, you know, you go back from uh, square one and uh, and you see everything that's gone down before, which people lost track of. I mm-hmm. mean, they were mixing rock with uh, classical music and blues music, mm-hmm. and they lost track of where rock was. There was no more rock. So you have to go back and look at your roots and then try to do something new and fresh again you know, with energy. So what, what you're taking from the past is really just the energy and excitement that rock did have. Wow, it's funny to hear them talk about all the current bands at the time. It seems like the Ramones wouldn't care a lick about any of those other bands because they seem to be kind of from a whole other planet, kind of removed from the pop world. But they just saw themselves as part of that whole scene and as a continuation of rock and roll. That's very interesting. As usual, you'll see they they dodge the inevitable question about their name. How did you come by the name the Ramones? And of course, you've all changed your names to to match it. But uh, could you tell us the story behind that? Uh, we don't know. (laughs) (laughs) All of a sudden, one day we were the Ramones. (laughs) We don't know where we came up with it. It was cosmic, you know? Uh, you know, just picked it out of a phone book, I guess. We just want, well, you know, we're a unit, and we wanted to simplify things and just use first names, you know, because... Yeah, we didn't want to, you know, tax anybody's uh, mind to have to remember your first name and last name, you know. We didn't think they'd want to even know your name. You know, you never know when you're going to reach that... that you'd ever reach that position where people are going to really care. We don't have any rock stars in the band where we're focusing on one person or something. Well, it's kind of like the Partridge family. Everybody's a family. And the Ramones. The Osmonds. The Osmonds. Yeah. <laughs> the Blues Brothers. Jackson 5. <laughs> <laughs> wow, great stuff from the Ramones. You know, Rolling Stone did a great cover story on them a few years ago called The Curse of the Ramones. Just Google that. It's a great article. Very informative, but very tragic. When I think of early 80s music in Canada, there's a handful of bands I think of, and you may have a whole different subset, that define the sound of the era. You know, those certain keyboard sounds, the drums that didn't sound like drums, Mm -hmm. and in some cases, that vocal style that goes back to Brian Ferry and David Bowie. Yes. I think of Martha and the Muffins, or Eminem as they became uh, known, the Parachute Club. Sure. And the Spoons, another band that comes to mind that really defines that era. Absolutely. And you know, that song, Nova Heart, that was their debut, that was their breakthrough, and I honestly think that's one of the great songs of the 80s, Canadian or not. Yes, I agree. I just think that 
everything about it, that drum sound, that that synth coming in, his uh, the guitar, uh, we you know, kind of weaving in and out. Gordon Deppie's lead vocals, Sandy Horn's background vocals. I absolutely adored that song when it came out. I bought the 12-inch single. I think it's like six minutes long, and I loved every second of it. Wow. Okay, Tom, so Nova Hart was on an album called Arias and Symphonies. I know it well. And it was recorded at George Martin's Air Studios in London. I did not know that. Released in 1982. I knew that. Uh, This interview, (laughs) it talks about the song and the sound of the spoons. Nova Hart is a really... When I first heard it, it it struck me as being an interesting combination of dance mm-hmm. and atmospherics. Yeah, that's that's always. I'd, I'd, I don't know if that's a, the proper tag to put on no, it or not. I understand but what you mean. It's it's got a moody, dreamy quality to it. Floats along. That really explains the band because that's what we tried to do in the beginning: do moody things instead of straight out rock and roll. Like mm-hmm. we used to do very progressive kind of things, and when we realized the market, we started adding the danceable beat to it. And that's exactly you just sort of described it right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, danceable with with um, moodiness in the background. So Gord insists that although you can dance to it, there's more there if you really listen. Uh, Nova Heart, the title itself, it's it, it deals with a personal relationship. It would seem, in a way, the the hook line, the title line, "I live in your Nova Heart." Okay, what? I think you have to listen to it carefully. I'm going to leave this up to the listener. Okay, you get buy your record because th- there's a an important message in there. And I think when you listen to it a couple of times and really get all the lyrics, you'll discover what, what I'm talking about. Okay, it's not just the chorus, then. It's not just I live no, in your there's, Nova there's, Heart. No, there's a whole meaning to it. Both sides are kind of moralistic in a way, but not in a, in a bad way. It's kind of more optimistic than what was done usually in the 80s, like talking about darkness of you know, cities and... and well, the stick-figure neighborhoods. Even. Yeah, exactly. Right. Right? And this is completely the opposite. It's really optimistic and sort of guidelines for better living (laughs) (laughs) better homes and gardens recommended yes happy record he also talks about how he envisions the songs that's really how I look at the songs especially in the album is the music to certain movies when I think of a song like Walk the Plank I I think of a whole movie the way the credits come on the introduction building Mm -hmm, up mm -hmm. and the verses as as the plot that's how I think of it like the whole story when I think of Walk the Plank I see the ships on the ocean and so on Mm -hmm. that's really and well, that's, that's the impression you're trying to get across to the listener then, too, mm-hmm. is a very visual one. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, People sometimes come along and say, oh, you're a dance band. But we always like to say that we're a band you can dance to, not a dance band, because mm-hmm. you can at the same time just listen to the music and get enjoyment out of that. The rest of the band is used to kind of flesh out the song. When I write the material, I keep everybody in mind. It's not like I have my guitar part and say, okay, well, go ahead and do your part. Mm-hmm. Like, a lot of times I'll give the lead line, like the melody to, to Rob, because I feel it should be a keyboard part. Mm-hmm. So often he comes out as the front guy, but it doesn't really bother me because it makes this, the piece that much better. Mm-hmm. But he's coming out of the shell a little bit. Like, at the beginning, he was very unsure you know, playing with us because of his age. He was, what, 15 when he started yeah, with he, he was shorter than everybody. Now he's t- <laughs> as tall as Derek. He's grown in the last year. <laughs> That's no, going to really. be strange, yeah. yeah. He's really grown. Like, he used to be shorter than me, now he's taller. Uh, and growing uh, musically, too, I guess. Well, I guess yeah. you could say so. Yeah. <laughs> now, the band started in Burlington, Ontario in 1980, and they are still working. It was Gord, Sandy Horn on bass, Derek Gross on drums, and Rob Proust on keyboards at age 15. By the way, Rob is now an associate music director on big Broadway musicals like Mamma Mia and Once. No way. That's yeah, great. That's yeah. the little 15-year-old boy who that's grew up Rob. so much right in front of the spoon's eyes. So that's great. Yeah. They were maybe 
the most photogenic Canadian act at the time. So they were a natural for videos. You've just done your first video, I guess, yeah. for Nova Heart, as right. a matter of fact. And it really looks good. Very classy, very professional. Did you do it right here in Toronto? Yes. Yeah, with Rob That's Cortland. amazing. How did they get you, Gordon, to look so sinister? There's one part of the video where the, it's the red light on your face. I don't know if it's a camera angle or what, but it's... Oh, right. Yeah, there were a couple of shots like this. It starts out with us at this table with lots of smoke and the most the hottest lights you've ever stood in front of it, oh, was, yeah. it was just torturous <laughs> but the smoke's coming up and we're lit from beneath so you get that kind of evil thing and it's red and then later on we kind of come out of it re as regular like a live shots right. that's all it was it's just white, yeah. lit from the bottom and a lot of smoke and mm -hmm. a lot of heat oh. which made us sweat a lot oh it's yeah. great though oh and they were really a good looking band Christopher um, you know I just saw the video again the other day Gord's a good-looking guy. The rest of the band looks good. And Sandy Horn is just a dream. And she was like, she was like the new wave dream of, the, of that era. I really loved her. Um, also, I saw the Spoons at the second police picnic. So you, you remember that oh. there were a bunch of um, concerts known as the police picnic. Yeah, in the I saw one of them. In the Toronto area. There was one, I think, in 1981 in a field in Oakville, which I saw. I was at that one. And I saw the second one, August 13th, 1982. The Who? police... Right. The Talking Heads, The English Beat, Flock of Seagulls, The Spoons, and notably, Joan Jett and the Blackhearts. <laughs> now, do you, were you at that one? No. Okay, so every act there is like a new wave post-punk kind of band. Including jo including Joan Jett because of her history with the Runaways. Oh, That's the way I the see. promoters saw it. The right. audience sees it as Joan Jett, rocker chick, the antithesis of the music that we were there to celebrate. Right, right. It's not. It wasn't fair what happened to her on that on oh, that day. Did they respond badly? And what happened to her on that day is she was pelted with food. Oh. She was booed. There was a big person with a giant sign that says, "We love rock and roll, but Joan Jett sucks." It was Yow. ugly, and the promoter came out. And gave us all proper hell for what was happening to Joan. And a lot of people felt very bad for her. She went back on stage. She kicked it out like, you know, like she would, right? Because she's uh -huh. fierce. And it got better at that point. But it was a real low light from that day. And it was kind of an ugly side of an us versus them attitude. The new wave kids, you know, the kids who were the, the indie kids, the alt kids from, you know, th that version back in the 1980s. And it was against that whole rock and roll uh, syndrome, that us versus them thing. I don't know if I'm explaining that very no, well. No, it I'm getting the picture. Yes, it's not a pretty one. It was not a pretty one. And I think that Joan Jett became more respected with the crowd, that, that same crowd that booed her and threw things at her in the years to come because she certainly didn't deserve that because she was as part of that kind of post-punk new wave movement in her own way and had as much of a right to be there as any of the other acts. Well, her songs endured... And That's I right. think that that sort of helps to buff up your reputation. Yes. Now, my recollection, and I haven't researched this, but is that those shows were actually pretty mixed in terms of who the who the acts were. I mean, I saw one of the latter ones, and I saw it, and James Brown was on the bill. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Along I did, with the I police. I didn't see that one. I, at that point, I was living in Sarnia when they did the third police picnic. So that might be the one that you saw. So I was living far west, but I saw the police on that same tour, but it wasn't a picnic. Maybe so. someone who's listening can remind me of who else sure. was on the bill. Sure, for <laughs> sure. Um, but yeah, but you know, the police were great. 
uh, uh, Talking Heads were amazing. Like, mm. imagine the police and Talking Heads on the same bill. Yeah. Uh, English Beat were great. You know, they had that mirror mm-hmm. in the bathroom. Love all that, that great songs. Uh, Flock of Seagulls, they did Iran probably four times. No, I, I but they they did <laughs> Iran. And and the Spoons were awesome. They kicked it off. You know, they're doing Nova Heart, and it's just, it, it, was, a, it was a great feel-good moment for that band. And, of course, we finish every episode with the wisdom of Dave. <laughs> As David Lee Roth expounds upon an issue that only he would consider an issue. Now that Edward has a little studio in his backyard, we have even more excuse not to accomplish anything. You know, we can sit around and, you know, people don't understand, you know, life uh, does, in fact, get much easier. The more money you make, the more popular the band becomes and so forth. You have a lot more excuses for not accomplishing anything. Like, for instance, now we have 16 and 24 track machines that don't work today, so we just better sit around and discuss it. And now we have guitar roadies and drum roadies and bass roadies who don't show up it's not just the guitar player and the bass player anymore who doesn't show up to rehearsal or anything it's the guitar roadie and the bass roadie and of course if they don't show up then we have another excuse to sit around and talk about cars all right that Mm. does it that does it for another episode of famous lost words you're dizzy just for the circuitous route that dave takes roth yes i've been roth (laughs) (laughs) anyway our show is produced by adam karsh thank you adam remember to follow us on facebook at famous lost words on twitter at Famous Lost Pod. Now, don't forget, you can also catch up on past episodes of Famous Lost Words on iTunes and the iHeartRadio app. Bye! 